All right, all right, all right. So they were teasing me a second ago because I don't have a good game plan to open the service. And uh, so I think I'll sort of cut straight to the chase, which is greetings in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, the Lion of Judah, the Prince of Peace, our wonderful counselor, the God who walked among us, who loves you and loves me and loves these people on this stage, um, who imbues our hearts with the Holy Spirit and lives with us and guides us and teaches us and ultimately leads us back home. Praise him, honor him. Let's sing about him right now.
Well, welcome everybody. We're so glad you're back with us with ABF Online. Thank you, worship team. It's been a wonderful opportunity to kind of focus uh, our thoughts as we worship together. Hey, there's lots of things happening here at ABF this week. First and foremost, we want to continue to pray uh, for our country, and we want to continue to pray for our church and our community. And so you can do that by texting us prayer requests at 97,97000, or take the care journal right now and fill it out. And uh, you know what? If you're listening online, you can text us that or email us that as well. So some of the things that are happening this week are, number one, our Caneo Valley Meal Program. That's on Monday, November 9th. And so we'll accept those dishes that you are cooking on Monday afternoon. Bring them right to the well. If you have a non-perishable item, you can drop it off at the church on Sunday as well. We have a blood drive coming up on November 15th. And so we want you to uh, know that it'll be safe and you can do that over in the student ministries building from nine to three. You can sign up in advance so you don't have to wait or show up uh, and get your blood taken then. Then Marriage Essentials is also that morning on November 15th at 9 a.m. And you can uh, find us over in the well. The risers will be teaching again at 9 a.m. on November 15th. And then for all of you who are new to us in the last four to six months, we have our newcomer's lunch on November 22nd, again, over in the well. It'll be right after our second service, starting at approximately 12.15. And then we want to again thank you so much for your generosity uh, and giving, whether you give online or if you're here with us uh, by sending your check or dropping it by the church. Thank you for your generosity. And so let's just pray right now uh, before... Scott comes and brings our message. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what you're doing in our church, in our community. And right now, we pray that you would just bless us as a congregation. And we look forward to hearing what Scott has to say as he opens your word here now. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, church, uh, thank you, John, for leading us in prayer. And I uh, wanted to just uh, welcome you just to another online service. And just so you know, we're filming this on Thursday night. And so uh, it's been a pretty intense uh, week, as you all have experienced. And I'm sure uh, by the time you're watching this, there's been a lot more that transpires. And uh, so realizing that it's been an intense week, I was just just kind of processing through everything that's going on with the election. And I've been just uh, clinging to some different truths and some different reminders that I think are important for all of us. I was thinking about based on how the results uh, are going and whether this is something that is a season of celebration for you based on how things are going or if it's a season that you're anxious. There's a few things, regardless of the change that might be occurring, there's a few things that I think are constant. Regardless of what happens, with any of this election, our calling does not change. Our calling to be uh, salt and light, to be bringing the love of Jesus Christ to the world that we've been placed in, that doesn't change. Our future, where we're headed if we've embraced Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, obviously has not been altered uh, even a, a tiny bit. And then if you think about the most important piece, our, our king is exactly the same. Our king hasn't changed, our calling hasn't changed, and our eternity hasn't changed. And so because of that, we can have hope going into regardless of how the election results uh, fall. And so because of our clinging to that king, we continue to study his life, continue to study his word. Let me just pray uh, peace over us. I know John just did, but let me do one more shot. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this chance to be together. And we invite you now to speak to us through your word. It's so fun to explore the pages of story after story of your supernatural power on display. God, we thank you that you're still the God uh, today that you were back then, that you haven't changed, that you're constant, that you're reigning and ruling over all. And that changes the lens in which we see everything, every circumstance that we cling to you through. We ask now that you'd be active in the study of your word, uh, that you'd meet us exactly where we're at. We pray that in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
So you might notice on the screen there, we've titled this section of John. We're in John chapter six, just starting in verse one. I've titled it, Not Just Talk. Not Just Talk. It got me thinking uh, this uh, past week of kind of reminiscing back to my junior high years. And I don't know if I've ever shared this before, but we made a pretty major move when I was going into seventh grade. My dad took a job uh, in the outskirts of uh, Chicago called Melrose Park. We moved from our entire family from Ohio to Chicago. And I went from kind of a uh, back uh, town of Ohio to kind of more of a, an urban environment. It was an all Italian neighborhood and uh, clearly I'm not Italian. And so I had a, a lot of challenges in junior high, uh, those couple years, seventh and eighth grade, I was in a, a ton of altercations. I, I will just call it fights is maybe the more uh, accurate word, just with different uh, different kids. And what I, I learned after a while is that you could often avoid fights by just talking a big game. You, you, could, you, could, you could talk big, you could talk tough, and sometimes fear would set in and you could avoid the fight just by talking big. And here, here's the, the thing that happens though in junior high is some of those big talkers from junior high really never grew up. They become big talking adults. Now, some of you are like, uh, is that what you're saying about yourself? I don't know. Uh, Either way, we get a lot of big talking uh, adults. And here's the the problem with big talking adults is you're like, are they going to back up their claims? Are they going to actually follow through and what they claim to be about? You can say it with a job interview. You're like, man, they sounded great and they look great on paper, but how are they going to prove to be in real life? We obviously see it in politics. We see it in lots of places. Big talk, wondering what kind of follow through there's going to be. Last week, you might remember just where we're at in the story of John is in chapter five, we saw Jesus make some pretty huge claims about his deity, about his ability, about his oneness with God the Father. Whatever the Father does, I do. Like I I should receive honor and glory just like the Father. All of these things, all of these claims, you're like, man, you better come with guns a-blazing if you're gonna make those kinds of claims. And in our text today, that's exactly what Jesus does. He demonstrates that he's not just talk. In fact, he's building a deity resume that's basically without flaw, demonstrating just amazing supernatural power. Every direction he turns, demonstrating his supernatural identity. We'll start start in verse one here uh, today. It says, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? All right, we'll stop there just for a little bit of setting the the stage. The first couple words that you see there starts by saying, after this. Sometimes in the account of John, you're just getting, uh, zooming in on on just main key events with a lot of time uh, happening in between events. And that's definitely the case here. So our last story was about somewhere between six and 12 months prior to this. And so a lot has happened in between the last story in this one. It's about a, uh, at the least a six month period of time. Uh, in that time, he's been ministering in all throughout uh, Galilee. Matthew gives house fill in some of the blanks there. I love reading the account of what was transpiring during this season. Matthew 4.23, I just real quickly want to point to what was happening in the after this part. And he says, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those who oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. 
And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So basically, people are flocking to come see Jesus. He's, he's like a magnet. People are so drawn to him. They had never seen anything like this before. I tried to point when I was reading that, some of the key words when he says that they brought him all of the sick. Like, what, what's happening? Healing every disease, every affliction. What is going on in this region? You can't, can't imagine the crowds that would have been following him. That's why in our text here today, it says, went to the other side of Galilee and a large crowd was following him. A huge mass of people. And you see his popularity. This was probably, if you look at the scope of his three and a half years of ministry, this was probably when his popularity was at its peak. It was a very uh, large groups that are coming out and really setting the stage for really what I would describe kind of like a, a Hollywood thriller that we're gonna see in our story today. It starts off with a major dilemma, a problem that they're facing. Then it goes into more and more desperation as it builds, and then a hero comes and rescues the day, and then there's emotional response, much like most of uh, the, the chick flicks my wife watches. But here's the idea. The first part of the story it's presenting a problem. You see it here. I don't know if you grabbed it in the text. What does Jesus say when he sees this huge crowd coming? He says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? This is a big deal. If you're with a crowd, you're like, okay, how? We, we, don't, we, don't, have, uh, we don't have mobile trucks. We don't have vending machines. We don't have any way to feed these people. And when you have a large crowd, and they're very uh, irritable and on point. I don't know. We, we've come up with that word hangry. Uh, I think that maybe describes uh, maybe where these people are at. So he's pointing out this dilemma. Really, every great story does that. The problem is first presented. And re really here, when you think about the flow of our own lives, that's how our story often begins with our encounter with Jesus. It starts with a major problem, a, a major life issue, a, a crisis, whatever that might be. Some of us might describe that as, well, that's exactly where I'm at right now. That's where I'd say I'm at. I'm in the middle of a, a family drama, a health issue, a relational uh, conflict, a loss of employment, a political anxiety. I don't, I don't know what your story, what your problem presented is, but here is an opportunity for Jesus to meet that need. Notice his words as he's talking to Philip. I like it. He says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? I like how Jesus interacted with his disciples because he asked things that he clearly knew the answer to. It's kind of like setting them up in a sense, kind of like, oh my, what are we going to do? And this, this dilemma where he's presenting, he knows exactly what he's about to do. I don't know if you've had that experience, maybe messing with your kids. We've had fun over Christmas uh, time as we'll get uh, billed towards a particular gift all Christmas season. Then when it comes to Christmas time, it's nowhere in the piles of gifts. We did that a couple years back with Chase and the, the PS4 when it first came out. We had, he had opened every single gift. That was really the only thing on his list. And we're like, oh, are you happy with your socks and underwear? And uh, he's looking this this look of panic. And then we pulled out from behind the, the couch or whatever. Oh, look, do we have one more gift here? That The box is perfectly the size of a PS4. But here he, here's the idea where he asked that question. Sometimes you might wonder, why he does that. Why does he ask those questions he knows the answer to? And really the best explanation I would say is it's a test. It's a test. Really anytime he's, he's checking in with us, it's a, a test designed to deepen our faith, to deepen our faith. Look in verse six, you start to see he allows this test and he says it right there. He said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little, to get just a little bit of it. So you see this, the desperation builds and sometimes I wonder if God allows that. Maybe you've sensed that in your own problems or your own situation that you're like, man, it sure seems like God allows things to linger, allows us to kind of sit in that place of desperation. And in that, I feel like so often that's where he does the most intense work in shaping our faith muscles. 
he hopelessly explains to him. He says, hey, even if we had 200 denarii, that we couldn't feed them just a little bit, just to give you a sense of that. In that day and age, somebody, an average wage for a day was one denarii. So this would have set, been like saying, you could work eight months straight and you wouldn't have enough money to feed these people even partially. So you sense the, the desperation. This is the number cruncher, guys. I don't know if you're any number crunchers in the group, but often those are the, the people that are always trying to come up with a human solution and not really giving any consideration that maybe Jesus might show up in his power. Some of us, I think, in our circumstances do that still today. We get so caught up with the human explanation. Well, this would take this, this, and this. And you start to look at the circumstances and you're like, there's really no way that I can solve this. There's not a, a human route to get there. And it's kind of sad. All that these people have seen during this season of ministry in Galilee, all that these disciples had been exposed to, that they're not even considering that Jesus might intervene. So I would say it was kind of a, a, a if it's a test, I'd say most likely you'd describe it as a, as a fail. Impossible situations are wonderful trust exercise. Look at the, how the other disciples respond. In verse eight, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? We'll pause there for a second. It's a, another group of people. Some do the, the number crunching and some of them are constant. Some of us are constantly scanning the room, trying to figure out how we can solve it. That's exactly what he's doing. Just constantly looking for a solution under every rock. There's gotta be a way, there's gotta be a way. And look at even that person, the person that's maybe good at problem solving was still left at man. This kid's lunchable isn't gonna get us there. Like the, the, his faith collapses at the enormity of the challenge. None of the disciples demonstrate any level of faith that Jesus may be able to provide. He was at, they were all at the end of the ropes. If we're honest though, and it's easy when we look back at these stories and we're like, man, they're so faithless. But how many times do we do the same thing? get to the end of our ropes and we're like, I don't know what to do. I quit. I don't, I can't solve this. I remember uh, uh, quite a few years back, uh, we used to take college students on these serving trips. And one of the uh, trips we ended up in White Sands National Park in the middle of uh, nowhere. It was kind of a cool place because they had these just beautiful, all these white sandy dunes and really as far as the eye could see and we're exploring this national park with uh, 80, 90 students. And in the middle of us exploring, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this uh, unbelievable dust storms to the wind start picking up. And out of nowhere, literally within five minutes, it went from sunny to like complete chaos, pandemonium. So I'm trying to rush all of these, these uh, uh, college-age students getting back in vans. And we're a little bit panicked. In each of our vans, we've got walkie-talkies and we're trying to get a count. The temperature dropped like 50 degrees, no exaggeration. And in the count that we came up with, we realized that we were two students short of the group that we were supposed to have. And it was so unbelievable, the storm outside, you couldn't even see one foot in front of you. So we were a little bit panicked. And it was one of those things that we were, we're playing through all the different scenarios. Well, what can I do? What could we do here? What if we send out teams? What if we do this? And we realized for a moment that we're like, you know what, at this point, all we can do is just pray for protection for these two students. It was awesome to see the, all, all the, the students come together. And I mean, they're pouring out their hearts. Please, God, protect them. I mean, we knew that there was a lot at risk with this. And it was awesome to see in those moments where we could do nothing to solve it. That's when God showed up for us. Man, if we could come to that place, instead of being the, the number counter of trying to be the problem solver, instead of being that person that we would more quickly come to the end of our ropes and plead for the rescue of God, leaving God's involvement in the equation, not taking it out. Here's the, what happened though. You see, as it transpires, how Jesus responds. Uh, we don't know what to do. We can't provide for all these people. Look in verse 10. It says, Jesus said, 
have the people sit down. Imagine as they're hearing these instructions, they're like, why would we have them sit down? Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. Now, for us, we've heard this story. Some of us grew up with this story. It's actually this account is given in uh, all four of the gospels. It's a beautiful story and it's easy to move past that and be like, oh yeah, that's the story of them feeding the 5,000. First off, a couple things that transpired there. First off, the thing to realize when it says 5,000 people, that's the way they counted was counting the men. So most of these would have been families, including uh, children. So uh, quite possibly between 10, 15, or maybe even 20,000 people seated there. And out of nothing, he provided fish and bread for all of them. This is, a, this is a creator God moment. This is a Genesis 1 moment where something was made from nothing. Literally, these couple loaves and fish and expanded into enough to feed thousands. What does that look like? What would you be like if you were that, one of the, the people there and you're watching? I don't know if they could physically watch it, like expand or something grow from nothing, something appeared out of nowhere as the one fish giving birth to other fish. I have no idea what kind of crazy transpired, but what we do know is that God did something that these 15,000 potential people would never, ever forget. They'd have that sealed in their mind forever. What in the world? How would you try to make sense out of that? How do you explain that to somebody as what transpired or what excuse? It's one of those things that you can only attribute to God. You think about this for a second in Jesus's ministry, how awesome it is that really when you think about how he demonstrates his power, it's never ever to elevate and celebrate self just for the sake of celebrating self. It was always with the intent of meeting someone's need. Isn't that cool? Sometimes I think about it, if I had all the power that he had the potential of, I would have been flying circles above people. I would have been doing jumping off of mountains and like all the things that Satan basically tempted him to do. And instead, he uses his power to meet needs. He uses his power to meet real, tangible needs. We should find that encouraging, that our God sees needs and meets them. Sometimes we get hesitant to ask him about our personal needs. We're like, oh, there's other people that have more important things. God's like, no, bring whatever need you have, bring it to him. He loves to meet the needs of his people. Nothing wrong with asking for that. So here we're seeing the pattern that happens. Jesus talks a big talk. People will be like, whoa, quite the claims he made. But then what do we see as a response to that? He demonstrates that what he had claimed is perfectly true. His power is on full display. His deity is on full display for thousands to see that they would most likely never, ever forget. Verse 12, we'll continue in the text. It says, and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. I don't know if you've ever heard the expression before, I'm so full, I can't eat another bite. I don't know if you've used that before. I don't use it very often. In fact, uh, my wife and I uh, joke about how hard it is to find a place that gives enough food that you're actually content anymore. We went to a restaurant a couple of weeks ago with some uh, friends from the church called Tel Aviv. It was actually, uh, is that the name of it? And they, the portions there, this is maybe a side advertisement for a second because their portions there, I took home enough food for my lunch the next day, which is very rare. I don't know why I got on that tangent, but basically here the idea 
is that Jesus provided enough that everybody could eat so that they made that statement, man, I can't take another bite. And then after they're all this massive crowd at the place where they've eaten all they can, all that they possibly can, then we see what does is, is left over. Jesus is like, oh, there's gonna be more than enough. He supersedes expectations. He says, all right, guys, go pick up all the leftovers. And what is the amount of leftovers left? What does it say in the text? How much? How many baskets? Now, there's a lot of debates, whether it's the 12 tribes, all this figurative stuff, all this. I take it more simply, just thinking that he wanted each one of his 12 disciples that were so anxious about trying to feed this group to walk away that day carrying a basket stuffed with leftovers after they were already completely full. Kind of an exclamation mark, if you will, on the miracle. So he sends each of the 12 home with a tangible reminder of God's provision. Look at how the people respond. They celebrated. They wanted to make him king. But here's the important thing that you notice there. What do they acknowledge him as? What's the term? This is indeed the prophet who is to come. The prophet? Wait a second. Who has Jesus been claiming to be? He's been claiming to be the Messiah, God in the flesh. So they're accepting him, but partially embracing him with some caveats. He's a, a, a good teacher. Remember last week that Jesus never intended to leave any other possibility other than being God himself. So prophet wasn't quite hitting the mark for who he claimed to be. It says that they wanted to make him king. It really made all kinds of sense though, because around the, the Passover was kind of like the 4th of July where nationalism was extremely high They were wanting so desperately to find somebody, a leader to relieve their hardships. And this leader that could heal people and provide food, it was like the perfect social welfare system, like all in one. You're like, are you kidding me? It's the full package. And so the quick fix for health and wealth, they wanted him to be their leader. This indeed is the prophet, still not accepting though, his deity, ready to make him king, which is, impersonal, not ready to embrace him as Lord, which is personal. My question for us today in response is, how do we respond to God's provision present day? How do we respond? Do we make a a big deal about it? Sometimes in this, you're like, man, look at that emotional response. Like, oh yeah, they just got all hyped up and emotional. I wonder sometimes if today we have the exact opposite problem, where we don't get emotional enough about God's provision in our life. We try to push back and we're like, well, we don't wanna be just emotion-driven people. And instead we've swung the pendulum where God does amazing things on a daily basis. And you're like, yeah, that, that was cool. That was, that was great. No, no big deal. So no callous to it, no longer acknowledging him as the, spo- the source, even getting to the place where we expect something from him or even worse, demand something. But instead, His acts of provision should be moving us on a daily basis to a place of worship. Man, God, thank you for this. Kind of a funny thing, as I was going through my notes just before this, I was eating a a little bit of Chipotle, and uh, that's often a a meal that I'll enjoy. And as I I had one of those, uh, I'll call it a Chipotle moment. Maybe you have one of these. Uh, one, One of these moments where I started looking through the ingredients in my Chipotle bowl. I'm like, wait a second there. They've got somebody that has collected rice from rice fields, who knows where. You've got farmers that have grown corn, tomato. You have farmers that have have gotten together all of these ingredients. They've they've killed a chicken. I had chicken and steak. They've killed a chicken. They've killed a uh, they've killed a a cow for my for my meal. All the things coming together for this perfect blend, and I'm like. Oh yeah, I had Chipotle a couple times this week. You're like, are you kidding me? Like, what are you talking about? Even Chipotle should move us to worship. There's a preachable moment. That's right. There, there I finally got an amen from uh, uh, the group here. You think about the amount of provision that's right in front of our noses where we literally live like kings, but forget to acknowledge the source 
of our provision. So yes, they had an emotional response, but man, wouldn't it be great if we maybe learn from that and responding similar. In response, Jesus, it says, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. We don't know how he does that. I don't know, I don't know what his way of sneaking out of crowds that are 100% focused on him. I don't know if he teleported or what, but either way, we're told that. Verse 16, continuing, we'll end with this last section. It says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. All right, we'll end there with our text, but I want to just explore that a little bit. The Sea of Galilee is such a, a beautiful spot. It was a kind of a, a highlight in our trip to Israel a couple years ago for us. And, and really one of the things that caught us off guard was the, the sheer size of it. Here's a, a picture of it. You can see on the, the screen there, just a, a beautiful, beautiful spot. But the really when you look into it, it's not on that screen, but it will be by the time the video comes. But here's the idea. See, that's faith played out there. So the idea is this uh, Sea of Galilee was seven miles wide, is seven miles wide, 12 miles long. So when it tells you that they were between three and four miles out, how far into that trip are they? Hey, good math. There's the number cruncher. But here's the idea. They're about halfway across the, the Sea of Galilee and they say, it says that Jesus walks up to the boat. Now, they're a little freaked out. I remember being out on that day, and it was actually a pretty calm day when we were out on a boat on it. But still, like the intensity of the waves, anytime they're talking about how you could get freaked out on that, on that uh, body of water, it completely makes sense. You imagine him walking halfway across, showing up, and it says at first they were frightened when they saw Jesus. Let's be honest, though, the most stoic seaman would be rattled if he saw somebody walking up to the boat because that's not what humans do. Humans don't walk on water. That's not how it works. They might be able to do it for a few split seconds, but to walk three plus miles across the Sea of Galilee in a storm, what in the world? What kind of unbelievable demonstration of the deity of Jesus Christ can there be? Jesus calmed them. Now, it doesn't say that he calmed the storm. It says that he calmed them with his words. What does he say? He introduces, he says, it is I. In the Greek, he literally said, I am, which is an expression, again, of his deity. It's seen throughout scripture. At this, this the disciples all of a sudden lost their fear and brought him into the boat. Thinking about that, the parallels to life right now, and I think this is maybe if there's a teachable moment in this whole sermon, this is it. I'll tell you what, when Jesus is in the boat, when he's in, all of a sudden, it doesn't matter how crazy the storm is. All of a sudden, the peace that washes over you when you recognize who's in the boat with you. My prayer in this season for us, for myself, is to realize who is in the boat with us. It radically changes everything. It says that in that, upon arriving, it says immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, think about that for a second. And we were just told that the boat was at the halfway point. So it still has another three, at least three miles to make it across the, the, the sea. You're like, how does that work? How does a, a boat arrive instantly at shore? You've heard me talk about being a huge car fan for a long time. One of the things that they kind of point towards in a car is it's, uh, it's zero to 60 speed. How fast it can get from zero to 60. There's a new Tesla Roadster coming out that they believe is going to be 1.9 seconds, which is just insane to think about. 
but not as impressive as this Galilean fisher boat. You know what I mean? Like, think about that. We don't know how he did it, whether he chose to just instantly the acceleration of that boat across the water. I lean towards that because that would be really epic. Getting from one, the middle of the Sea of Galilee all the way instantly to the side. What kind of horsepower? I guess that makes no sense, but what kind of speed and acceleration that would be? And if it's not that, then what is the other option? He was uh, transported in the boat to instantly be there. They, he moved all the mo molecules of the boat to relocate them on the shore. Any possibility that you consider as an explanation from this screams of Jesus, not just being a, a big talker, right? Do you think his resume is filling up pretty good? Do you think that deity resume is, is looking all right? Here's the, the reality to understand is for, for us, a lack of evidence of Jesus' deity is not a valid reason for people not to believe Jesus is who he says he, he was. He, th th that's not a reason. It's not a lack of evidence. Instead, it's a stubborn resistance. It's a stubborn resistance because we realize that if he is who he claims he is, then there's a radical change demanded in our life. The entire book of John is to give an account, some story after story of all of the miraculous that Jesus did so that we would believe. And when we believe, it radically changes the lens in which we see everything. The confidence in a believer's life should be off the chart. Maybe you've heard the expression before that there's a uh, we're told that we're supposed to grow up and no longer do childish things. We, uh, as we're dealing with junior hires, sometimes we just shake our head and we're like, man, they're, they're in junior high. Like someday they're gonna grow up and kind of move past some of these things. So childishness is something that's actually condemned. But here's the important thing to understand in scripture. There's a difference between childishness and childlike. Childlike is actually celebrated because childlike all of a sudden looks past all the crazy and strictly sees Jesus Christ in the abilities that he has to rectify our situation, to rescue in our situation. And my prayer and my hope is during this crazy season that we're in, that we would have a childlike faith. And we'd have a childlike faith that sees, that looks at a ordinary day with Jesus and says, wait a second, in the same day, we're told he healed the sick. He fed 5,000 plus people. He walked on water. He teleported a fishing boat. What in the world is going on in your circumstances that, that his presence couldn't solve whatever it is you're dealing with? My prayers, we cling to that through seasons of uncertainty like we're in. Let me pray as we wrap up. Lord Jesus, we thank you again for just another account of your miraculous deeds. It's so fun seeing these stories. I pray that there'd be new life that's brought into these as we get a glimpse of who you are. Because when we actually cling to who you are, it changes the lens of everything else that we're surrounded with. I pray that we can hold tight to that even in the coming days of uncertainty that we are children of the King, the King of Kings that reigns and rules over all, that has the ability to change things, to move things, to sway things, however you choose. Nothing happens that wasn't a part of your plan. Uh, we thank you for that. We thank you for being the good father that you are, for being someone that's worthy of our worship. In Jesus Christ's name I pray, amen.
Well, we couldn't have a more fitting song just to wrap up. Christ is enough. He's plenty. He's more than enough, in fact. I pray you cling to that into the week ahead. God bless you. We'll see you next week.